So last week we looked at Exodus chapter 26 is where we left off. And we've been looking at the veil, the curtain that's in the temple. Uh, Of course, the first structure was the tabernacle, and then that was replaced by the temple. But still the same location for worship of God. So looking at the curtain particularly, I want to see that in relation to another passage. It's in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Now, it, it's, it takes in the entire chapter of that, that which is going on and the details that are here. But I want us to uh, look at the first few verses and let's go with verses 1 through 4. So what chapter was that? 16? What chapter did you say it was? Leviticus 16. Yes. Leviticus 16, 1 to 4. So if you have it, please, uh, anyone, go ahead and read it. After the death of Aaron's two sons, when they drew near before the Lord, offered false fire, and died, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother he must not come at all times into the Holy of Holies within the veil before the mercy seat upon the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud on the mercy seat. But Aaron shall come into the holy enclosure in this way, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen undergarment, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his body, and be girded with the linen girdle, or sash, and with the linen turban, or mitre, shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and then put them on. So this is the beginning of instruction for what is to happen on this one day out of the year, which is referred to as the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is another word for it. Now when you think about gleaning from the Old Testament, perhaps Leviticus isn't the top of the list in in many respects. Uh, are you familiar with, with what Leviticus is about? If you were to read through the, the book of Leviticus. You start it and you recognize there's a lot to do with sacrifices and uh, laws and uh, regulations. And when you read through it, it, it can be something that you can would get bogged down in if there's not a recognition that 
for the purpose of this. This was for the people of Israel and how they were to conduct themselves. And the majority of what is here is now past because it was associated with the tabernacle and then the temple, the, the Aaronic or the, the, the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, the high priest and so on. The temple doesn't exist today, does it? Furthermore, the scriptures tell us, especially in Hebrews chapter, uh, well, Hebrews completely, but Hebrews uh, 9 and 10 uh, are big aspects of it, that Jesus, his priesthood, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And I think we, did we discuss that a little bit? Was yeah. there, there was a yeah. question regarding that last week. Mm-hmm. So, His priesthood has replaced the priesthood of Aaron. It's obsolete. It's it's fulfilled its purpose. And Jesus now has replaced that. So when we read through the book of Leviticus, we don't recognize that it's for that purpose. We can get bogged down on it. There's many things here, though, that point us to Jesus, not least of which is chapter 16, which we are jumping into here. So Aaron is being told of what he needs to do. He needs to wash himself. He needs to put on his uh, high priestly garments. He's told that he can't come wherever, whenever he wants. It's only once a year. As we look at this, he's told more instructions regarding what is he to bring. So let's look at verses 5. Let's do 5 through through 10. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats, as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord, Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. And was there another verse there? Ten? Verse 10. 10, yeah. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive <coughs> before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So the, the main focus here is on two goats. He's to take them and he's to cast lots for them. So the way they did it uh, was one was a black stone, another one was a white stone. They would put it in a pouch and uh, take one in one hand and the other in the other hand and the black represented uh, that which was the goat which was for 
the people or the Lord as it was. And the, the other one was the one that was called uh, the, the goat that was sent away. Or in the Hebrew, it, it's, it's like a name, Azazel. So one was for the Lord and the other one was Azazel, sent away. So we've, you've heard of the term scapegoat, right? Mm-hmm. People use it today uh, without even recognizing where that term came from. William Tyndale, and when he was translating in 1530 into English, he coined that term, scapegoat. It didn't exist prior to that. But the word really, this goat was the goat that was sent away. So there's two goats. One's going to be taken for the Lord and it's going to be sacrificed. The other one is going to be taken and brought out into the wilderness. That goat is going to carry the sins away from the people. It was, it was two symbols of the same thing. One, the sacrifice for the people's sins. The other, to take their sins or to carry their sins far away. Do we have that picture? So I have on the screen a, a photo of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, a model which depicts what it might most likely looked like during that time. So in the middle of the screen, you can see is the temple. Now remember, this is a model, all right? This temple does not exist. Uh, That temple uh, stands about this tall as a model, all right? So that's how tall it is to about my um, low chest is about how tall that is. So this temple is the place where the priests would would offer the sacrifices, and then once a year, the high priest would go into that temple. So I wanted to connect this with what was taking place last week because it was beyond the curtain. That veil prevented the priests from going in the other days of the year except for this one day. So here is a closer view of that temple. So this is the temple itself, and then this is the the court of the priests. This is the court of the men, right in here. This is the court of the women. And then out around the other areas, outside of that, would be where all of the Gentiles could come. So you see how uh, the further away you got from the temple, the more people could be gathered. The closer you got into the presence, the very presence of God, the fewer people were permitted to the very point that only one person could go into the most holy place. So this is that place that the the high priest is going to go into. We'll skip that one. It's not necessary. Well, it's not changing. Uh, Since it's up there, this just gives you an idea. When Solomon built his temple, that's how big it was. Herod built the temple after after the people returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. 
and Zerubbabel ended up building the temple. Herod ended up increasing the size of that temple. So you see the comparison of the two is quite uh, significant. I didn't realize that Gentiles were allowed into that temple. So when you look at this, I wonder why it's not responding now. Probably the battery might be low Did you know that? Low battery? Today. Well, it responded. That's yeah, good. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. turned or something. It makes it All right. So on the Temple Mount, the Gentiles, they could go into this outer courtyard here. That was permissible. But not into the... There we go. So they could be on this area and outwards, but they couldn't come in here, here, like in, in beyond. In th This forms, remember the tabernacle? And they had that fence. Yeah. It it, this would be a similar boundary so that the average person, the average Gentile, they just couldn't go in. As a matter of fact, there would be signs at each of these entry points in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin saying that no Gentile is permitted beyond this point for uh, on pain of death. Really? Yes. They, so the Jewish people were permitted to be able to carry out the, the uh, capital punishment if somebody were to enter into that, uh, those courtyards beyond, mm -hmm. beyond that spot. That's interesting. <laughs> so you see the restrictions that were in place. In other words, they were outsiders. <laughs> they were outsiders, but they were allowed to come. Remember Jesus, what did he do at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2 and at the end of his ministry in, um, does John record that? John doesn't record that. In Matthew chapter 21, uh, where he comes into the temple and he sees all the money changers and the tables and, and buying and selling of the animals. And what did he do? Yeah. He overturned them all. Why? Because they had, they had placed them in areas that displaced the Gentiles, especially from coming to worship. And that wasn't to be. And Jesus says, you've turned my house into a den of thieves or a, a marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. They were rebuked for even carrying uh, merchandise through that temple court. If you were going through casually just as a short, uh, shortcut from one side of the temple to the other instead of going around, you were severely rebuked because it wasn't meant as such. It was meant to be a purposeful uh, ascent to come there to worship, not to just use it as a common area. So the high priest, he's coming on the Day of Atonement. And he is now allowed to go into the most holy place. But there's regulations for him. He has to cleanse himself in a certain way. He has to put on the high priestly garments so that he'll be clothed in the proper garments. Then he's to come with blood. He can't just enter in. He has to come in with blood. So he takes two, two goats to begin with. 
And one is for the, for the Lord and the other one is um, for the people, as it were, to take away the sins. So here's what happened. One was sacrificed. The blood was collected in a bowl from that goat. That blood would be carried by the high priest into the holy place. Then he would take incense, put it in his uh, censer. He would put that beyond the curtain so that that smoke of the incense would fill that area. And then he would enter in and he would sprinkle the blood in the direction of the Ark of the Covenant. Then he would go back out. Now the the order is a bit reversed here because he first goes in with... um, In verse 11, he's first to go in with the blood of a bull for himself. So the scapegoat and the goat of sacrifice is there just as a detail, but the order in which it's done is Aaron with the blood of the bull for himself to atone for his sins, then the blood of the goat to atone for the sins of the nation, of the community. There's something that I think will be of interest to us. Throughout the years, once they, they began to uh, worship this way, the tabernacle was built, then the temple was later built, they started to do something. They began to tie a red, a scarlet ribbon around the horns of the scapegoat. Then they would also take part of that ribbon that they would cut, they would rip in two. They would take the other portion and they would tie it to the door handle of the temple. Once the, uh, the scapegoat was taken, here's what they did. Originally, they would let the scapegoat just go into the wilderness. But for fear that it might come back into the city find its way home. You know, the cat came back the very next day sort of thing. So to try to avoid that, if you've had it, they would have a designated person to not only lead it out, but to take it to a cliff and then to, uh, to throw the goat over the cliff so that it would fall to its death so that it wouldn't have the ability to come back. And here's what they observed. When the goat that was taken away was dead, the scarlet ribbon turned white. And by this, this is what uh, the Jews by tradition believed was that God had accepted and approved of uh, and absolved them of their sin for yet another year. Let me read you something from... Uh, well, before I read that, I want, to, I want us to recognize this. Why did they begin using a red scarlet, or a scarlet uh, uh, ribbon? They did it based on Leviticus chapter 14. Let's go back there for a minute. It was a ritual that the Lord had told them they were to carry out. If somebody had leprosy, then they were to take, uh, the priest would examine him, and then after it had been determined that he had been cleansed from his leprosy or healed from it, 
Then he's verse. Let's look at verse five, uh, verse four. Deb, would you would you mind reading just to uh, four to seven? The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two clean two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop, dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leper's disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Do you see some parallels going on here? With the Day of Atonement, there's two goats. With this process of cleansing for the leper, how many birds are there? There's two birds. What happens to the birds? One is killed, killed and the other one is? Overrunning Yeah, and the other one is? Released, let go. Now, what happens here, they're to take, um, with, the, with the living and clean birds, there was to be cedar wood and scarlet, and then there's hyssop. One is to be killed over running water, and then for the live bird, he takes the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and dips them and the living bird, all those together, in the blood of the bird that was killed, and then sprinkles that blood seven times on the person who had been cleansed of leprosy. So the Jews saw in this some parallels. Two animals, two birds, two goats. One's dead and the other one lives. One's dead and the other one is released, as it were, to, take, to, to go away. And so their tradition began that they would take part of that scarlet thread if, if that process was taking place and they would tie it to the tail, feathers, and the wingtips of that bird, the live bird. Seeing that to be the case, they decided they were going to start doing this with the scapegoat, the goat that was sent away. So I want to read this to you. In what is referred to as the Talmud, which is a collection of the oral traditions and commentaries of, uh, by the Jewish people. So in the Talmud, it says this. Forty years before the destruction of the temple... So what year was the temple destroyed in? Anybody know? Say again? 70. 70 AD. So we have Jesus. He prophesied that the temple is going to be destroyed, didn't he? He said in Matthew 24. He says not one of these stones will be left on top of another. So in, uh, that was in 30 AD, approximately 32 AD. Forty years later, the temple is destroyed. So this is what the Talmud says. Forty years before the destruction of the temple, 70 AD, 40 years earlier, the western light went out, the crimson thread remained crimson, and the lot for the Lord always came up in the left hand. They would close the gates of the temple by night, and get up in the morning and find them open again. 
So here's what, what he's saying. That thread, that crimson cord always turned white. But 40 years before the destruction of the temple, it stopped turning white. Every, excuse me, every day of atonement, they would tie this crimson uh, cord or um, uh, garment to the doors of the temple and it remained red, scarlet. Next year, the next year. But what happened 40 years before the destruction of the temple? Jesus was crucified. No more need for the scapegoat because Jesus was the fulfillment. He took our sins and carried them away. He was our atonement. And so this scarlet... uh, I keep losing my word. The scarlet... What did I call it? Yarn, cord. Cord, yarn. Um, From the time of Jesus onwards, according to the Talmud, their traditions, the traditions of the Jews, and they didn't believe in Jesus, remember? But they record that for 40 years before the temple was destroyed, that scarlet cord remained scarlet on the Day of, of Atonement. They didn't understand the reason why. Yes, they're still waiting for Jesus to come. They're, well, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. They don't believe it's Jesus. At least not yet. Uh, many of them do not. Yeah. But yeah, they're still waiting for the Messiah to arrive for the first time. So that was one thing that happened. The western light went out. So on the, on the uh, lampstand... So there's a lampstand. We have seven of the seven branches, and on each one, you've got lamps. And it says that the western, uh, the western light went out every night. The western light went out. So that was the one that was intended to be lit, and all the rest of the lamps to be lit from. But it wouldn't stay lit. It wouldn't continue to burn. Why? Because that which represented the light of the world, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. has come in His fulfillment, in His fullness. So this doesn't serve as a symbol anymore. It also says that the uh, lot for the Lord, remember it says the high priest would choose lots for which would be uh, the goat for the Lord and the other one to, to be the scapegoat. It always came up in the left hand. For 40 years, every year it came up in the left hand. There wasn't significance about the left hand except to say it, was, it never happened just by random. It's always in the one hand. Always before that it was this year maybe the left hand, next year might be the left hand, two years from now it would be the right hand. Just as, as you roll dice, you know, it's not going to be the same roll every single time. So they began to question, what's going on here? There's something wrong. And then the doors of the temple, when they closed the gates of the temple in the morning, they were always open, indicating that the access into the presence of God has been made available. They didn't understand all of these things. But this is what, even from the Jews' own traditional writings, indicate that there was something 
significant that happened 40 years before the temple was destroyed. And we see it fulfilled in the person of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. So he fulfills the types and the symbols of him being uh, the goat for atonement, the sacrifice, the goat that was sent away to carry the sins away, where he was the high priest, fulfilled in that picture as well. The light um, is fulfilled in him as well. All of these things, symbols and representations pointing towards Jesus. So we can take all kinds of time and look at all the various aspects of the things, articles in the temple. But we, we would be here, you know, several weeks just continuing to look at the various articles. But that's not our purpose. You can look into that for yourself. But recognize that God designed these things to represent that which would be fulfilled by Jesus. So as the scapegoat, he takes, I failed to bring up our, uh, our picture. I think we need to talk to Bianca about getting new batteries. There we go. There's our scapegoat with the red ribbon. So the goat that was sacrificed speaks of atonement. The goat that was sent away speaks about cleansing. I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 1 to 5. Hebrews 9, 1 to 5. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Mm-hmm. Just prior to this, the writer of Hebrews has been speaking about the new covenant that's been brought into place. Quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. And the new covenant takes the place of the former covenant that had been in place for several hundreds of years. It's been replaced by the ministry and the 
death and resurrection of Jesus. And he starts speaking and reminding us, the readers, about the, uh, the worship in the tabernacle that was, that was on earth and begins detailing some of the aspects of it. And we've been talking about the most holy place and where this, the blood of the goat and blood of the bull one day out of the year was brought in for, uh, for atonement for the sins of the high priest and then the sins of the nation. And we have that spoken about here in verses 4 and 5. The Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 5 it says, On top of the ark was the cherubim of glory that overshadowed the mercy seat. Does anybody have a different uh, word detailing mercy seat there? It's all the same? Mercy seat. Mercy seat? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you see any connection with this mercy seat with earlier in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 we see it and verse 16. The writer tells us that because we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way like us except he was without sin we are therefore able to come boldly before the throne of grace to what? obtain mercy, and to find grace to help us in the time of need. The throne of grace. The throne of grace is where we see the mercy seat, a seat of of mercy and blessing. And we've talked about this before, but I wanted us to see the connection. The only reason that that seat is a seat of mercy is because of the blood of the sacrifice. Without the blood, that seat of mercy is a seat of judgment. It's still a seat of judgment, but the judgment becomes mercy because of the blood. And we see it fulfilled in Jesus because he is our high priest, not only the high priest, but the sacrifice as well. And by his blood, he's made the way into the most holy place. As we saw in chapter six of Hebrews last week, the anchor that's gone beyond the veil into the presence of God in the most holy place. So because of this, we can come with confidence before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. We see that Jesus, not only is he pictured as the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, because, not because we're trying to impose an idea upon that, that uh, piece of uh, that article in the temple and the tabernacle, but because the scriptures themselves tell us that Jesus himself is the mercy seat. I want to look at one more passage of scripture in Romans chapter 3. That seat could be called the forgiving seat. Well, it's a seat where forgiveness is 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 uh, given out for sure. Yeah, because of His mercy. Yeah. We all know what Romans three twenty three says: For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it continues on in verses twenty four and twenty five. 
Can somebody read those? Is that Romans 3? 3, yes. And verses 24 and 25. Okay. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over. The sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has the faith in Jesus. All right. So in verse 25, uh, in that translation it says, whom, that Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Mm-hmm. Does somebody else have a different translation there? Verse 25. Yeah, probably does. Atonement, life, speak life of atonement. Life-giving sacrifice. A life-giving sacrifice. So there's a life-giving sacrifice and then... Another translation will speak of it as uh, the atonement yes. through His blood. Yes, and atonement. Yeah. All right, so atonement through His blood. That word propitiation or atonement is the same word that we see in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5 for mercy seat. So it says here that Jesus, God set Jesus forth as the mercy seat by his blood so jesus is the mercy seat or the fulfillment of the mercy seat so the scripture itself tells us straight up that jesus is represented by that picture of the mercy seat the word in the greek for propitiation and mercy seat uh, from romans 325 and Hebrews 9, verse 5, is the word hilasterion. It's the same word in both places. So, it could have said, so God set forth Jesus as a mercy seat by His blood. So we see that Jesus is fulfilled, or He fulfills that picture of reconciliation between God and man. Let's come back to Leviticus. We could spend much more time in in Exodus looking through various things, but we're going to continue on in Leviticus. And I want us just to have a look here for the time that we have remaining. Leviticus chapter 1. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Leviticus 1, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. 
So he's going to begin straight away talking about worship through sacrifices and offerings that they're bringing to the Lord. There's five sacrifices or offerings that they begin to mention. And if we were to start reading through these aspects in chapter 1, and then we see again in chapter 2, and then chapter 3, and then chapter 4, and then chapter 5. We could get bogged down pretty quickly and, and easily if we're just looking at it as regulations for the people of Israel. But in chapter 1, we see in verse 3, what is it called? Kind of an offering. Burnt offering. A burnt offering. It's, a, it's the aroma that goes up, if you will, the fragrance from that whole burnt offering unto the Lord. And then we see in chapter 2, we're going to find out in verse 1 what kind of an offering is offered there. A meat offering, so that would be the King James translation there. More specifically, the word is, means, grain. So for in the King James English, meat uh, quite often refers just to food or a type of, of, uh, of food. Mine says cereal. Cereal, all right, so grain. Grain, yeah. grain is cereal. Uh, so when, yeah, so cereal there, you, what comes to mind when you think of cereal? Shreddies or, yeah. oh, um, Cheerios or something, Weetabix, you know, that sort of stuff. How, do, how are those prepared cereals made? They're made from? Grains. Grains or cereal grains. So uh, literally it's referring to grain, all right? So the word is referring to a grain offering. Then chapter 3. What kind of an offering is it there? Peace offering. Mm -hmm. A peace offering. That's interesting. Uh, look at chapter 7. Go ahead to chapter 7 and look at verse 15. Leviticus 7 and 15. Somebody have that? And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. So he's to eat, uh, it shall be eaten the same day. So this is the only offering that the person making the offering eats of a portion of it. A peace offering. It's also called a fellowship offering. It's not to gain peace. It's not to try to secure fellowship with God. This is an offering that's brought to the Lord because the Lord has already provided peace and made fellowship with his people. So this would be an offering that a person comes really out of thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord and will offer it up as an offering of thanks 
for the peace and the fellowship that he has received from God's hand. Let's come back to chapter 4. And we'll see in verse 3. Thank you. Chapter 4 and verse 3. If the anointed priests sin, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. All right, so in this instance... The offering that is being brought up is a sin offering. Mm -hmm. Then we have one more in verse, uh, chapter 5 and verse 15. Verse 15? Yes. If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally, in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass, offering a ram without blemish from the flocks, with your valuation in shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, as a trespass offering. And another way that this could be referred to is not just a trespass offering, but as a guilt, guilt offering. So the guilt offering is somebody has, uh, they, they unintentionally harm somebody else's goat or sheep, livestock or something like that. Now they need to make restitution. Or maybe out of anger, they threw a fit of rage and uh, killed one of its, his neighbor's uh, livestock, a sheep or something like that. Now he needs to make restitution. And part of that restitution involves him offering, uh, bringing an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord, acknowledging his guilt for what, had just, what he had just carried out. So this is different than a sin offering or a peace offering or the grain offering, so on. But in each of these offerings, each of these offerings or sacrifices is a picture of Jesus in the grain offering, Jesus is spoken of as the bread of life. And in John chapter 12, he speaks of himself as a kernel of wheat, a grain of wheat being what? Does anybody know? Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, yeah. it remains. Alone. Yes. yes, exactly. So this is in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, when, or excuse me, not the last week, but the last uh, few weeks of Jesus' life when he makes this statement, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground, it remains alone by itself. But if it falls into the ground and dies, then it comes to life bringing a great harvest. So he's speaking about himself there, that he must die. And it's in response to, to the request of some Gentiles, he said, Sir, to Philip, he says, Philip and Andrew, Sirs, we want to see Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Jesus, when he's told this, he doesn't automatically say, Okay, bring, bring them along. I'll, uh, 
I'll, I'll entertain their questions or I'll interact with them. He tells, this is the response. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he talks about the grain of wheat falling to the ground. And so this grain, it's like this, this grain offering that the Lord Himself, that Jesus Himself is offering Himself up. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground. And He's speaking directly about His glorification. And what is His glorification? How is Jesus glorified? He'll say just a short time later in that same passage that... If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. So he's referring to his death and ultimately his resurrection. He says, my soul is troubled within me. What will I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for it is for this very reason that I have come to earth. I've come for this hour that the Son of Man may be glorified. So he's offered himself as a grain offering. We see the res- different respects and aspects of the other sacrifices and other offerings that Jesus has provided himself as. He's the one, because of his, the offering of himself, we've now been brought close to God and we have peace with him through Jesus Christ. And we have... Not only we've been made not only friends, but also we've been made sons and daughters of the Most High. One verse that I'd like for us to finish off with is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. So if you have that, go ahead and read it, please. For our sake, he made Christ virtually to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in and through him we might become endued with, viewed as being in an example of the righteousness of God, what we ought to be approved and acceptable and in right relationship with him by his goodness. All right. So God made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, And the scriptures say to be sin for us. But it's not that Jesus became sinful. What it's referring to there is that he made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us. A guilt offering. So every time a sacrifice was brought, whether it was the scapegoats, or the goat for the, the Lord that would be sacrificed, or the bull, or these various offerings, the whole burnt offering, or the fellowship offerings. Um, uh, not the fellowship offering, because that was an offering of thanksgiving. 
but all of these other ones to atone for sin was that the person who was guilty would lay his hands upon the head of that lamb, thereby symbolizing the transference of his sin to that animal. That animal did not become sinful. That animal did not become sin. And they didn't do anything to that animal to try to make it look like sin. They didn't take a bucket of pitch or tar and then smear it over the animal, did they? They took the animal and sacrificed it. Its lifeblood left its body seeing the high price of sin. The innocent for the guilty. So the innocent died in the place of the one who deserved that end, that death. And God credited that covering to the person bringing the sacrifice. But we know from Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So how was it that those sins, those sacrifices worked on behalf of the people that offered them? They just looked forward to what Jesus was going to do. Exactly. God took it as a credit or a down payment, if you will. Looking at what Jesus would accomplish on the cross. So just as the lamb was spotless and pure, so was Jesus. No blemish whatsoever. And where those animals had no choice in the matter, they didn't say, I will stand in your place and take your punishment. Jesus, however, willfully, purposefully, and intentionally came to earth as one of us so that he could die for us and he could die as us. It's a choice he made so that he came to take our place so that he who was without sin, God made him a sin offering so that you and I could receive that imputed righteousness from Jesus Christ. We would be credited with his righteousness. I have notes in mine in Leviticus. Is it okay if I read it? Yes, it is. It just said, See what a blessed change is made by the gospel of Jesus Christ. All good Christians now have boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies through the veil every day. Yes, absolutely. So that's why I wanted to connect last week with this week with the curtain that prevented any time access. But Jesus, uh, through his death, that veil was ripped in two, representing that open access anytime that we can come boldly to the throne of grace because the veil of his flesh had been ripped in two, as it were, on the cross. And where we see the scapegoat and where we see the high priest going behind that curtain once a year, that Jesus even fulfilled that. And even Jewish tradition is recognized as 
something significant happened 40 years before the temple was destroyed. They don't acknowledge it as the death of Jesus. But we know what happened 40 years before the destruction of the temple was that Jesus died and took the place, fulfilled all that those sacrifices and worship and observances had pointed towards himself. And the worship in the temple had become obsolete the sacrifices and so on. Yeah, it says not made with hands. No, now yes. we can come and then we don't have to have the temple and all the stuff that was made by hands. Absolutely. They were made, all were made by hands. That's right. Yeah. And they were made after the pattern of the true temp- temple that's in heaven. Yes. Yeah, so that's why it says in Hebrews 6 that Jesus went beyond the veil, as it were, into the very presence of God that our hope as an anchor that is, that is placed there. And the presence of God is the, um, what's represented by the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of Jesus Christ, now open access to come freely and boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. You just wonder if we appreciate enough that we don't have to go through all of this stuff that they did in the temple and the mm-hmm. sacrifices and all that. Yeah. That we can just come anytime, any place, anywhere. Mm-hmm. We have so much to be grateful for, oh, don't yes. we? Yes. To think um, if if because of our sins we would have to bring uh, a, a lamb or a goat from our flocks. Uh, in order to offer that as a sacrifice. It becomes much more visual and uh, impacting as to the effects of sin. But when we consider that Jesus took our place and he took our sin, how much more should it be that we see, look at the price that was paid for our righteousness. May we walk worthy according to the calling. In Jesus' name. Mm. Amen.